You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Morning. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the elders at Gospel Community Church, and I'm super excited to preach God's Word this morning. Before that, I did want to say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. It's kind of <laughs> that, That's exactly the attitude towards Father's Day. <laughs> it's funny, Brad, we were, we were talking right before I went up, and he's like, do you have anything prepared for like Father's Day? And I was like, no. He's like, I feel like you should do some kind of prayer. And I was like, Maybe do one during the introduction or something. He's like, all right, I'll take it. I was, uh, Nicole and I were watching a comedian the other day. I don't know if anybody's seen this clip, but he talks about Father's Day. And he's like, I've done the research on Father's Day. And of the list of American holidays and the rank in which they're celebrated, Father's Day is like 20th on the list. And then Christmas is number one. And Mother's Day is number two. So he's like, you have Jesus and then your mama. And he's like, I can't even think of 18 other holidays. So I, if you're a father, I appreciate you. We're, we're uh, in a lot of ways, some people relate to God based upon their relationship with their earthly father. And so that's a big weight for the fathers in the room who are seeking to show their children the love of, the Christ, the, the love of Christ. So it's kind of a, a big burden. Hopefully we're all not pointing our kids to ourselves as the hero, but ultimately, ultimately to Jesus, who is the hero. That is our mission here at Gospel Community Church, to make Jesus the hero, to not lift up any one person, but everything we do, we hope, is pointing to him and not ourselves. So we've been looking at the letter from Paul to the Philippians, and we've been looking at it as a blueprint, just as a short little video we had up here beforehand, as a guide for the building of God's church and Christian living. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Philippians 1, and we're looking at 12 through 26 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back of the room, and that's actually a gift from GCC to you. If you don't own one at all, you can take one of those home with you and put your name in it. And if you 
don't like a physical Bible, there's plenty of apps. So I highly, highly encourage you to follow along with us as we look at the scriptures this morning. So we've been going through the series titled A Gospel Blueprint. And we've been asking ourselves how we're to go about building the church that Jesus said he would establish in Matthew 16. What is our guide in making that happen? And what is our goal? The gospel is meant to be the blueprint, the building materials, and the finished product. It's meant to guide all of what we do, how we interact with one another inside the walls of the church, and how we're to interact with the world beyond it. We've been looking through the book of Philippians to help unpack this for us, help guide us in this mission. We've looked at what a Christian is and how the gospel influences that answer, and we've looked at how the gospel is a source of growth for the Christian And in establishing what a Christian is and how we're strengthened in their faith, today we're going to look at what it means to go to war. Because the gospel doesn't just save us to be nice people here on earth for a little while, and then we really get to experience the fullness of it when we die. As a matter of fact, one of the most glorious aspects of the gospel is that you've been given transcendent purpose. You've been commissioned to advance upon the darkness of this world with the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel of the kingdom is kind of a term we forget sometimes, but it was one that Jesus often used. Even in his own preaching, he would say of himself in Matthew 4.23, it says Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Mark 1, it says the same thing. In Luke 4, Jesus said, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 24.14, he says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. So his followers that are then to take the mission will go forth and do the exact same thing. They will continue this preaching of the gospel of the kingdom using this very specific language. The gospel is more than just a heaven reality for us one day, but a realm of God's rule and reign he's establishing right now through the powerful proclamation of this purification of both his people and this planet. And so we're going to look at Philippians and see how Paul guides us in that today. If you'll read with me now in Philippians 1, 12 through 26, and then we'll dive in. This is Paul speaking to the church in Philippi again. In verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we first come to you on this day where we honor and celebrate fathers and rejoice at the fact that you've called us your sons and declared yourself to be our father through Jesus's works. Through what he's done, you've invited us into your family. You look upon us as beloved sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased through what Jesus has done for us. I pray that fathers in here would be motivated uh, by what you've done for us and use that as a guide in how we disciple our own children. And thinking and reflecting upon the mission we have in our homes, I pray that this passage here would spur us on to do this work within the walls of the church, outside the church, that we would continually advance upon the kingdom of darkness with your gospel and that we would bring light to a very broken world. We thank you for not just creating a world and leaving it to its own, but coming in and healing us of all of our sin, providing a solution to all the brokenness we see around us. You haven't left us, God, but you've done something about it, very personal in sending Jesus to live amongst us and reconcile us to yourself, and you are reconciling the whole world, and we glory in this. We love you, God. We pray you guide us as we go through this passage today. Impress it upon our hearts and our minds. Encourage us and equip us to go out on mission. We love you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For some quick context and a reminder, because I always like to provide some context, for those of you that might just be jumping into this section of Scripture, Paul is writing this letter while in prison from Rome to the church in Philippi, encouraging them. Philippi... When looking at verses 12 through 26, this is a very interesting place, a very interesting geographical location considering its history. It has a, its history is very rife with war and conflict. It has been the home of battlefields throughout the centuries. As a matter of fact, the father of Alexander the Great first conquered it in 356, and then he didn't just conquer it, he actually established it as a military outpost to protect the dominion that he had conquered so far. So it was meant to be a protection for part of his land, a training ground for troops, and even a commissioning out of soldiers. It was a territory that became a part of Rome in 168 BC after the Battle of Pydna between the Romans and the Persians. So again, it was a contested territory. It was a battleground when Octavian uh, defeated Brutus and was again used as a military outpost in 31 BC. So throughout the centuries, Philippi is no stranger to conflict and battle and war and strife. And here in verses 12 through 26, even as we read this first one in 12, he's saying what's happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is giving the city of war a commission to once again engage in conflict. This time, it's not an assault upon a human human enemy, but it's to advance upon the kingdom of darkness. But the question this time is what banner will this army march under? What flag will they fly? What nation is Philippi to be conquered by now? As I said earlier, the gospel of the kingdom. And it won't be conquered how most people would like it to be. Even those who are very pro-Christ ruling and reigning, which is this guy, very pro-Christ ruling and reigning, it's not going to happen the way we probably Most of us would want it to happen. We want Jesus to come in uh, through force or physical force. This is even what the people were expecting in Jesus' own day. They, They wanted him to come and push out the Romans, reign as a king and rule. So how is this supposed to happen if it's not gonna happen like that? According to Paul in verse 12, his imprisonment has somehow served the advancement of the gospel. What soldier 
considers his imprisonment to be of any benefit to the cause of conquering? What soldier being captured as a POW says, ah, this, this will benefit the war? Well, Paul rarely leaves us to speculate. Look at verse 13. It has advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's of benefit because the gospel is being preached. The preaching of the gospel is the divine power. We see Paul uses that word dunitas in 2 Corinthians 10.4 that God uses to destroy strongholds. And again, in Romans 1.16, the dunamis, the power of God for salvation. You may recognize that Greek word dunamis or dunitas. It's that English word we, we get for dynamite. And a, a fitting word it is because just as dynamite can bring down a building, so can the gospel level and destroy spiritual strongholds in the enemy's kingdom. This is the power of God. And not only, if you look at verse 14, when he's talking about the advancement of the gospel and how it's being preached amongst his own captors, but it's actually had an influence in the church. And most of the brothers in 14 have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And now they're much more bold to speak without fear. Not only will the heralding of the gospel bring the enemy low, but it lifts the saints up. Paul's boldness, even in the face of adversity, has stirred up boldness in his brothers to speak the gospel without fear. Some of you have, may have heard this quote that's like, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Anybody heard this before? Um, it's often been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who was a, not a sissy, but a Catholic friar and preacher. He was just from Assisi. That was a place. So I, I have four things to say about this quote. First, I will say James 2 calls us to meet the physical needs of people. When the church has the capability and there is a need within the church, there is a call to care for physical needs of people, whether they need food, shelter, uh, care. Uh, you know, <laughs> Nowadays, with so much litigation, we're careful to say the word therapy, but they need counsel. They need someone to speak truth in their life when they're going through difficult circumstances. So the church is called to be the hands and feet physically of Jesus caring and meeting the needs of people. However, regarding that quote, there's also, number two, there's no proof that he even said that. So many quotes throughout history are attributed to all different people, and there's actually no, nothing to tether it to that. It's just, they say it is. Three, no offense to Roman Catholics, but I'm not surprised to see them elevate good works over the gospel. And four, Muslims, Mormons, Jews, atheists can all do nice things. Any, any human being can do a nice thing for a person. And you can send people hopping along their merry way to hell with a handshake, how do you do, in a warm hearth. The gospel is what saves us. The gospel is our mission, and it's one of communication. You look at Paul and his commission in Romans 10. He goes through a list of things. He said, how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear with no one preaching? How are they to preach if they haven't been sent? There is a beauty in caring and meeting the physical needs of people. But even in Romans 10, 15, Paul says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. A direct quote from Isaiah. Your good deeds to others are beautiful in a way, but so much better are the feet that bring good news, that aren't just serving people and giving bread for the day, but giving the eternal bread, Jesus Christ, that bread that will sustain us throughout all eternity. And if you consider how important is this message, look at verses 15 to 17. This is how crucial this message is to Paul, the gospel message. He says that some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I'm put here for the gospel, but the former proclaims Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul has emboldened Christians in his imprisonment. Some of these are preaching more boldly because they see the reputation that Paul's getting. They see other people looking to what Paul has done and gaining encouragement, and they want some of that glory. And so they're going to now speak more boldly because they want some of that recognition. How does Paul respond to that? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He repeats it, which is a common, a common way in Hebrew where we, they draw emphasis onto something. Repeating it twice. Paul is rejoicing in the fact that the gospel is being preached. Whether in pretense or in truth, regardless of the motives, the gospel is being preached. Got to be honest, along with some of you, it, it bothers me. Hearing that, it bothers me. There might be some of you that it bothers too. We want people preaching the gospel out of good motivation. Yes, we, we, we would like that. But the truth is, even as you look throughout the scriptures, this isn't a rule. We don't want people preaching like this. I'm just saying, God often uses people who have wrong desires to fulfill his purpose, to accomplish his will. Look at Joseph. Look at his brothers who threw him into slavery. If that hadn't been done, that evil, wicked act of selling their brother into slavery, the line of Judah would have been, would have been cut off. There would have been a famine. Nobody would have known about it. There would have been no Judah. There would have been no David. And there would have been no Jesus. Even in their wickedness, God still accomplishes his will. He has been and forever will be accomplishing his will. Case in point number one, even in Paul's imprisonment, what does he say? The gospel's advancing. Even wicked men imprisoning Paul for sharing the good news are advancing God's kingdom. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It has been a train that has been plowing through earthly kingdom after earthly kingdom and it will be here long after they're all gone. And all of what they do to stop it is nothing more than fuel for the fire, driving the engine. Are you going to imprison Paul? Guess what? The gospel advances. The Jews are going to tell John and Peter not to speak in the name of Jesus. Guess what? The gospel advances. Emperor Nero in 64 AD is going to arrest, torture, and execute numerous Christians. Did the gospel stop then? No, it advanced. Roman Catholics in the medieval era wanted to burn, behead, and hang Protestants for translating the Bible into the common men so that all men could understand it and reclaim the gospel and escape from a works righteousness view of salvation. And still the gospel advances. Over the last century, whether it be Muslims or communist dictators restricting our ability to read the Bible or share the gospel, has that stopped the advancement of God's kingdom? No, the, again, the gospel advances time and time again. God slaps down the enemy in every evil attempt to silence the truth. As Paul finishes in this section saying Christ is proclaimed, and he has been proclaimed and will be proclaimed, and as Paul rejoiced in his day, so will we in ours, knowing that the gospel will be advanced. Regardless of what you see in the news, there's a term I like to use. I didn't come up with this myself, but I use it like, newspaper exegesis. You know, exegesis is like taking from the text and developing our theology from it. Don't do newspaper exegesis. When you see what's going out around in the world, nothing is going to stop what God has been doing and is continuing to do. Amen? Now, Paul here is, in verse 19, he says that, I know through your prayers and the help of Jesus, I'm going to be delivered. Concerningly assured of his deliverance, especially for those of us with Western ears probably, 
Paul was in prison. This happened. This is not some kind of spiritualization kind of thing. Like he was in prison, Roman prison. How can he be so sure that he's going to be delivered? I don't know if he meant like physically delivered from the prison. Because if you look at verse 20, he says that I have full courage now as always. Christ will be honored in my body, he says, whether by life or death. So I don't think he's saying, I'm absolutely going to be set free from the Romans in this prison. I think Paul is saying that God's going to deliver him, whether in life, by release of prison, or by death. Either way, Paul has deliverance, and he's confident in that. The truth is, for those in Christ, we have nothing to fear from those who can destroy the body, as Jesus even says in Matthew 28. He says, don't fear those that can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The greatest threat to man is death. I've said this before. Some of you may have heard me talk about this before. If death didn't exist, there wouldn't really be that many problems. I'll mention a couple exceptions. But if you, if you could get over any sickness, heal from any wound, forget any wrong committed against you with the passing of time, death is truly the great enemy. And it's not how it was supposed to be. Remember, Adam and Eve, it was told if they ate the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, then they would die. But that's not how God originally set it up. We are in a situation uh, different than how God originally had intended and created man to live. Death was not supposed to be a part of it. Death was not something that existed pre-fall. Think of any great political issue. Would it not be solved by the absence of death? War. It kind of just turns into a paintball game at that point. Famine. Well, no one's dying. So supernova destroys the earth. You still got your family and friends. I'm not saying it's, it's perfect, but it's certainly not death. And with a few exceptions, like something like prison, uh, most of problem, human problems would be alleviated were death not the thing. And certainly, the few exceptions that you could come up with, with the absence of sin and the presence of God would fix any of those exceptions and add infinite joy. Death is ultimately the greatest enemy of mankind. It's why Christ went to the cross to defeat death. It's why he had to rise again to show his conquering victory over the greatest enemy of man. But Paul here, he's delivered either way because death has been conquered by Christ. Paul has deliverance no matter what because it's, it's not a deliverance that he had to earn, but one that's been given to him through Christ. Just like in Romans 1.16, in verse 20, Paul has nothing to be ashamed of. Even in death, he's satisfied in the life he now lives in Christ. There's nothing special he needs to come up with. The same, set, the same is said of us. We can find satisfaction in our situation as Paul does in his, for we have victory beyond death. How is it, though, here we have Paul in a Roman prison. This is someone, if you read the writings of Paul, often speaks of freedom and deliverance. If you look at something like Galatians 5.1, he says Christ has set us free. 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says there's freedom. Galatians 5.13, we're called to be free. 1 Corinthians 9.19, I'm free from all. Romans 6.22, we have been set free. Paul constantly speaks of freedom, freedom, freedom. We've been set free. How, how is it possible someone so often behind bars can so openly and confidently preach about freedom so often? Does Paul here not have a good grasp on reality? Does he not see what's going on in his own life? Paul understands something that we ourselves would do well to understand. Paul understands that our earthly conditions are greatly overshadowed by our eternal destination. Paul understands that our earthly conditions are greatly overshadowed by our eternal destination. That's a truth that's not always easy to receive. It's not one meant to diminish our suffering. 
It's not meant to diminish the suffering of others and our care for them. Instead, it's one that we may embrace in times of difficulty and rejoice in, as Paul does here in a Roman prison, writing to encourage the church in Philippi and spur them on to go forth and joyfully preach the gospel. I'm 34 years old, still fairly young. According to my genetics, I've, I've lived half my life, but if, if I'm healthier than my father and his brother, I probably have a good 50 years ahead of me, so still fairly young. And even in my 34 years, I've experienced hardship, as most of you who've lived more than a couple years have experienced. I've lost friends that I've known, some who've taken their own lives. Speaking of Father's Day, I lost mine before he got to meet any of my children. I've endured a long and painful adoption process with our third kid that involved over, I don't know, what was it, like $10,000 and um, there, there was like a lawsuit and a lot of traveling back and forth between states to fight for her. I've lived in an active war zone for several months away from all my friends and family. I've wrestled with the future of my kids, especially the two that have been diagnosed with autism. What does it look like when they become adults? Are they ever going to be able to live out on their own? Are they going to get married? Will they bring me grandchildren? Maybe seems silly to some people that are incredibly young, but it's something I have great anxiety about. I'm worried about my kids and how they're going to develop. Just like most of you, probably all of you, I've experienced the lows of life. But as Paul can speak of freedom while in prison, I too can experience hope in my anxiety about the future. I can experience peace in the struggle of life, and I can experience joy in my sorrow. I can say along with Paul, as he does in Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Either way, Paul has nothing to experience but deliverance. Look in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether facing death or release from prison, he can rejoice that the banner of the gospel is ever moving forward upon the kingdom of darkness, advancing. Life for Paul in Christ is to be a part of that mission. Paul does not lead a purposeless life. You do not lead a purposeless life. The Christian's been given purpose beyond any kind of fleeting one you could try and create for yourselves. Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's not speaking of the flesh as in like a fleshly way that's used in other parts of scripture that's like in a sinful way. He's speaking in the flesh, physically, alive. If I'm alive, that means fruitful labor. What does it mean for the Christian to be alive on this planet as opposed to the unbeliever? What is the greatest distinction between what we do day to day going about our lives between the follower of Christ and the unbeliever who is outside of him? Right here in 22, fruitful labor. All of what you do, no matter how extraordinary, no matter how great you think it is, as an unbeliever will be undone by time. There have been two kingdoms over the course of human history that have lasted more than a millennia and they barely crusted it and they've almost been gone for over a millennia now. Give it another hundred years, and the Roman and Byzantine Empire will have been gone for a thousand years already. Time will erase even the greatest of men and all of their accomplishments. But for the Christian, they labor for a kingdom that has already been building for the last 2,000 years and will continue to build, and one with which the Bible says is everlasting. You look at 2 Peter 1.11, it talks about the eternal kingdom. Isaiah 9, 7, speaking of when Jesus would come and establish his kingdom, that the increase of his government and of his peace, there would be no end. 
Daniel, the same thing in 2.44, when Daniel's speaking about Jesus coming, it says that the kingdom that he comes and sets up shall never be destroyed. Luke 1.33, it says he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and to the end of his kingdom there will be no end. And this last one I want to give you is incredibly spicy. Revelations 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All of what those outside of Christ have built will ultimately be snatched away and given to his people in his kingdom. You say, God, God would do that? He would take from unbelievers and give to his people? Like, yes, yes. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. And this is, it shouldn't come as no surprise. We just got out of the book of Exodus. What happened? Who plundered the Egyptians? Was it some foreign nation or was it the Israelites? Look at Canaan. God literally tells the Israelites, these people are building vineyards right now for you that I'm going to bring you into this land and all of what these wicked people are doing, I'm going to hand over to you. Canaan is that Old Testament foreshadowing, that land promised that has now become the whole of earth in the New Testament. That reconciliation between heaven and earth that will happen one day, this is the new land promise that all of what is being developed by those outside of Christ will ultimately fall under God's reign and be handed over to his people. If you're an unbeliever, thank you. I'm just kidding. Um, verse 22, uh, I guess your labor is not completely fruitless. No, uh, the gospel gives us, it gives us reconciliation to God and freedom from sin, but it also gives us a mission. It gives us a purpose. We don't have fruitless labor. What we're doing will actually stand the test of time. There will be something of what we do in establishing Christ's kingdom here on earth that will outlast what we do now on this planet. And we see here Paul struggle with the different aspects of the gospel. I mean, he wants to go and be with Christ. Who wouldn't want to? Look at 23. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Paul's not, he, he's not saying that it wouldn't be better to not be in prison. He's not, he's going to be real with us. It would be better if he's not in a Roman prison. Being with Jesus is greatly better than being in a Roman prison. I can only imagine. Paul longs to be restored to his creator as we all do. Is he wrong in desiring the other side of glory? Of course not. Of course. But as he goes on, we see following the Messiah, that's not an individual experience. It's not just for me and myself. It's not just about heaven someday. We have marching orders. We have purpose. We have mission. You are not here for yourself. Look at verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is outward focused, as we're called to be. Are we followers of Jesus? If you call yourself a Christian, you meant to follow Jesus. Are you meant to grow in greater Christ-likeness? You're meant to be molded into his image and look more and more like Jesus. Not diminishing your personality and who you are, but growing into who you were meant to be in Christ. If that's true of you, you have to ask the question, did Jesus come here to serve himself? As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite, and Jesus explicitly says so, and so does Paul, as we'll see in the coming weeks. I'm not sure who's going to preach on it, but in Philippians 2.7, it speaks about Jesus coming to serve. Jesus says in Matthew 20.28, Mark 10.45, and John 13.15 specifically, I did not come to be served, but to serve. He even demonstrates it physically when he goes and washes the disciples' feet. A much more disgusting job back in the first century than it is in our own time when people didn't walk around with socks and shoes on. And Jesus still kneels down and serves his people physically, showing them, communicating to them through a physical act, a heavenly reality. I'm here to serve. 
And in Philippians 2, 7, which we'll see in a couple weeks, this is actually, if you're wondering, what is the, what does it look like to be a man or woman, like a human being? What does it look like to actually, Jesus came to show us what that looks like. And Jesus says he came and he took the form of a servant. That's what it looks like to be human. To truly be human is to serve. Not to be served, not to take, not to conquer, but to serve. And through that, we advance the gospel. It was for others he came and for others he sent us out to deliver this great message of deliverance. Our mission is a message. Paul goes on in 25, convinced of all these things, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. Paul's convinced that God's not done with him yet. He knows that he'll continue on in his suffering for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Up until this point, Paul has known a lot of suffering. He's not confused or trying to blindly ignore what is ahead of him. He knows there will be more suffering. And he's determined to continue on and carry forth the mission. I want to have you guys do this, but if, if you're ever confused at any point in your life as to when God is done with you, you simply need to put your hand over your heart. And if it's still beating, he's not done. He still called you to go. As long as there is still breath in your lungs and blood coursing through your veins, God has you here on this earth for a reason and for a purpose. You're still on mission. You're still advancing upon the enemy. Every single time the message of, the, of God's gospel is proclaimed, the enemy is wounded and strongholds in the kingdom of darkness are toppled. When, when you tell unbelievers the Christian message, and that's exactly how I frame it, by the way. Just a quick side note. I always say to friends, whether coworkers or people I don't know, I say, have you ever heard the Christian message? And I've never had anybody like, well, usually they say yes or no, and they say no. I'd be like, hey, do you mind if I tell you? I've never had anybody say no. But even if they say yes, you know, I just say, well, what, what, what is the Christian message to you? What do you think it is? I, only one time have I ever actually heard somebody say the gospel. Most of the time, it's, oh, if you do good things, you get into heaven. You know, if you're just like a nice person or whatever. And that's a great opportunity to just be like, oh, okay. Do you mind if I tell you what, what we actually believe? So when you remind believers of the hope they have, even in Christ, inside the walls of the church, to so those who are called to Christ and spur one another on in our suffering as we communicate the gospel to each other, reminding each other of that Christian message, of the gospel, as we suffer in Christ along with Paul and all our brothers and sisters before us, we continue to expand the kingdom. Generational change is happening. I... It's kind of funny between Nicole and I, there are 10 divorces between our parents. Between all four of our parents, there are 10 divorces between the two of us from our parents. God is impacting families generationally and changing and pushing darkness out. We're going to close with this. Looking at verse 26, I'm going to hone in on one word. Paul says in verse 26, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul wants them to grow in their faith, giving them more and more reason to glory in Christ. Now, in, in, in the Greek, that word glory is kalchema. And what it means is to boast. It's used three times in the New Testament. All three times it's used by the Apostle Paul. The other two times he uses it, it's in the negative. As in, he's saying, do not boast. And the reason why he uses it in the negative in those other two examples is because it's in reference to human work. He's saying, don't boast in what you can do. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in your accomplishments. But now it's used in the positive. This time he says, 
you have ample cause to boast. You have more than enough reason to boast. Now he's saying it's a good thing, and it's because of the object of that boasting. That object of boasting is Jesus. Boasting, this is what it means to boast. This is a great definition, one to leave with thinking about. Boasting means to proudly and openly express great confidence in an accomplishment. This is the application I want us leaving with today. I want you to boldly, I'm sorry, I want you to proudly and openly express great confidence in an accomplishment. The accomplishment I want you to do that in is Jesus Christ. Jesus who, as we'll see in a couple weeks, set aside his divinity, stepped down from his place of authority, entered into humanity, not as a governor, not as a king, not as some powerful political figure or popular personality, but a baby, an infant, dependent upon, uh, I wouldn't even say lower middle class, probably a very poor family, dependent upon a mom and a father, needed his diapers changed, potentially, needed to be cared for, walked with sinners in, during his ministry, aka you and me, everybody in this room, lived a perfect life, even though in every single way he was tempted just as you and I are, and then went to the cross to die for our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He went and died the death that you and I deserve. We deserve to be on that cross. In offending an eternally greater sovereign than anyone you will ever encounter in your existence here on earth, you have offended a great sovereign, greater than any president or dictator. You have offended the king of all creation in your rebellion. And that is why Jesus went to the cross, to die in your place. And in doing so, he didn't just die for you. He lived for you and imputed his righteousness to you so that God now looks upon you and says, just like he did of Jesus when he came up from the waters of baptism, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus looks at you as a son or daughter with pleasure, proud, joyful, not ashamed, not disgusted, but with happiness in his heart when he looks upon you, pleased, all through what Christ has done, proudly and openly express great confidence in his accomplishment, in this accomplishment. This is our mission. This is the banner under which the colors of our kingdom will always fly. It is a glorious thing to be with Christ. But until that day, this is our mission. This is our battle cry. This is what we herald. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming, not just dying on a cross, but living a life we could not have done. It's so easy to say, well, I will die for Jesus. I would die for Jesus. But who of us could live for Jesus? You lived perfectly in our place so that God could look upon us with great pleasure in his heart. And we thank you and we praise you for that. You've given us a mission. You've given us a purpose so that all of what we do now would not be in vain, but that there would be glory and pride in what we do and meaning in all of what we do. We thank you for that, that you've saved us for heaven one day, commissioned us now, and we joyfully look forward to that day when you have reconciled all of heaven and earth together. We love you, God. Pray that you'd encourage us in this mission, help us in this mission. We need you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.